0: Song of Solomon chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verse 6 down through verse number 11. If you would, if you're able, stand for the reading of God's Word. And the uh, scene here, it's important that I explain this to us, um, because Song of Solomon does not really tell us who is speaking when. And so that's left up to you and I to try to figure out. And so it seems pretty clear to me that this is... The harem, or Solomon's wives, speaking to the farm girl about their husband, Solomon. At this time, Solomon is married to 80 women and has 60 concubines, a total of 140 women in his life. And this is them uh, speaking about Solomon. So let's read from verse 6 down through verse 11. Uh, The Bible says there, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant. Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh, because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold, King Solomon with the crown, wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals, and in the day of the gladness of his heart." We're going to finish the Bible study we started last week, and the title of it is Please Don't Stir Up Love. Please Don't Stir Up Love. We'll explain that a little bit more in here in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have some clarity to the Bible study tonight, and Lord, for each one here, may the applications be made according to what's needed. Thank you, Lord, for this book, and Lord, use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I have been encouraging you to take a pen and mark in your Bible who is speaking when and so that you have a little bit more clarity. Within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you the little book that I have been working out of here and I wanted us to get at least halfway through the book or about halfway through the book before I gave this out. But this here lays out the book of Song of Solomon in script form uh, as though it would be handed out for and opera, or the opera actors, the, the play actors, and, and how to read it. And so I will print this out and give it out. And I just want to remind you that um, the, the break here of who is speaking when is not uh, gospel truth, okay? We may get to heaven and find out that Pastor Lejeune was dead wrong, and that's okay. Uh, the interpretation, uh, or rather the application, is more what we're concerned with, is making applications from God's word Uh, That will be a help to us. Um, There are some people here tonight that have not been here for any of the Bible study of Song of Solomon. And so those of you that have been here throughout it, uh, bear with us for just a moment while I give the narrative as I understand the book of Song of Solomon to be and bring everyone up to speed. Okay? So Solomon would have written three books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote that when he was a young man He was endued or given much, much wisdom by God early on in his kingdom. And very early on in his reign, he would have written the book of Proverbs when his heart was right with God. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life after he had made a whole bunch of mistakes and really, really messed things up. We're going to look at that a little bit more in depth tonight. But he would look back over his life and say, man, I had everything there was to have. And let me tell you what it all was. It was all vanity he calls himself the preacher of preachers and he says my life was vain it was filled with vanity and the book of song of solomon would have been written in the middle of his life now how we know that is that or the, the middle of his reign here how we know that is that he would marry a thousand women uh the bible tells us a thousand women he would have 700 wives and 300 concubines And, um, by the way, a concubine is a woman. A man, back in the Old Testament, would keep around for his own sexual pleasure. I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just explaining it as it is in the history books of time, okay? And it's filthy. It's wrong. It's disgusting, by the way. But that's just the reality of how it worked. And so um, a thousand women that were, would be attached to him. And so when the book of Song of Solomon was written, in the middle of the book, it tells us that he had at that time 140 wives. And this 140 wives makes up this harem. And so his heart is now filled with sexual lust. His desire is to uh, score as many women in his life as he can. And so he's recruiting women to be married to him and the book of Song of Solomon is written about a very very special young lady, a young lady that I believe was kidnapped and brought into his palace and this young lady told him, "No, I will not be part of your uh, of your harem. I will not be one of your wives." I'm not going to go for this. This is a young lady who we learn early in the book was a a farm girl that worked in a vineyard. And she was busy taking care of her siblings' vineyards when she should have been preparing for her wedding day because she was engaged to a young man who is a shepherd and this shepherd boy and her were set to be married. And Solomon, on one of his envoys back to his palace, saw her out in the field working. And he said, hey, she's pretty. I want to marry her. And so he ordered his men to have this young girl brought into the palace against her will. And Solomon comes riding into uh, the palace, walking into where she is early in the book, and throws his um, assumptive self at her and says hey, you're going to marry me. I'm the richest man on the planet. I'm the most powerful man on the planet. And by by the way, both of those things were true. And uh, you want to marry me. And she looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I am engaged. I uh, have my heart set on someone else, and I won't have anything to do with this. And so um, that brings us to... Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 brings us to act number 2. So at the close of chapter 2, the curtain comes down on the stage and things are rearranged. And the curtain comes back up for act 2, scene number 1. And we find in verse 1 through 5, the farm girl recounting her dream to the harem. So let's just review what we covered last week here quickly. Make a couple of quick applications and then we'll move on and finish out the Bible study with point number three. Okay, um, so number one, point number one, we looked at the dream of the farm girl, the dream of the farm girl. Um, letter A, we said she recounted the scare, the scare. Look at verse number one with me of chapter number three. The Bible says, By night on my bed, uh, here she, the farm girl is speaking to the harem, the 140 wives, by night on the bed I sought him whom my soul loveth, I sought him... But I found him not. So, again, she's been kidnapped and brought into this palace. And uh, she was given a space to go to bed, go to sleep. And there she is sleeping, and as you would be if you were kidnapped and kept in a strange place, uh, you would be uh, nervous and afraid and scared and wanting to get out, and these feelings caused her to have a nightmare of sorts. She'll actually have two nightmares in the book. The second one is far more violent than the first one, but this first one, uh, she has a scare, and her scare is that she woke up, and she's looking around, and she cannot find the love of her life. She cannot find her fiancé. Let her be noticed the search. The search. Look with me at verse number 2 and 3. She says, I will rise now and go about the city and the streets. And in the broad way, I will seek him whom my soul loveth. She says, I'm going to leave the palace here and I'm going to go look for my love and uh, I'm going to try to find him. Verse 3, I sought him but I found, rather, the end of verse 2, I sought him, uh, but I found him not. And so can you imagine, have you ever had a frantic dream like this where you're searching for something in the dream and you can't find it, and maybe you feel your heart starting to race a little bit? Well, this is how it was. She's looking for her fiancé. She's looking all over town for him, and she can't find him. Verse 3, she says, The watchmen or the police officers that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him... Whom my soul loveth. She's now asking the police officers, Have you seen my love? Have you seen my fiancé? I just can't find him anywhere. Let her see. We see this settlement. This settlement. And we said out of verse number 4, She says, It was but a little that I passed from them, the watchmen, the police officers, but I found him. I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. I found him. Man, I, we've been separated. We were lost. We didn't know where, I, we didn't know where each other were. And I finally, I found him and I grabbed him. And I said, you're not getting away from me. Here she is dreaming this and recounting it. There was a relief that she had found her lost uh, love, her fiancé. And then we said, letter D, the sweetness, the sweetness. And we spent most of the time from the Bible study last week looking at Point one, letter D, and then point number two. And so let's recap it. Look back at verse number four again. Verse number four uh, says, It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him not who my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. Look here, until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. So for those of you that are new to the Bible study, um, uh, this will be new to you. Those of you that weren't, uh, were not here, this will be a quick recap. Uh, but look here. What's sweet about this? She found him, and what was the first thing she did? she did? She took him home to mother. She said, let me take you to see my mom. Let me take you to visit with my mom. And the, ad, the admonition to the single folks in the room last week was involve your parents in the dating process. Involve your parents in the dating process oh how important that is you say well my parents aren't saved involve them anyway unless they're just totally godless and totally reprobate and totally off the the uh uh, the the deep edge there in every other case involve your parents in the process boy this girl took her home her, her fiance home to meet her mother i recounted the story of my dad taking my mom to visit his mom his lost mother and mother who isn't saved and uh My dad's mother, my grandmother, giving an endorsement uh, on uh, my mother and loving her and saying, yes, this is the one. The last one wasn't, but this is the one. And to those of you here that are parents, I would encourage you to raise your children in a way where they're told from the very beginning to involve you in the dating process. Help them to understand that at a young age. I'll share a little bit more from what i shared last week and expand out a little bit one of the ways that my mother subtly did this with me is that when i was 11 and 12 years old she would come in my room to pray with me at night and she said to me she said i want you to begin praying for your future spouse and i said mom i'm not interested in girls i don't even know that i'll ever get married and she said oh you won't always feel that way She said, I want you to begin to pray for your future spouse. And so she'd come in my room at night, and I'd say my prayers where I went to sleep, and I began to pray for my future spouse. You know what she was doing there is she was teaching me to co-labor with her in preparing for and praying for a wife. Is it any wonder that when I finally did meet Angela, one of the requirements that I had on Angela is that she fly to Baltimore where my parents were living at the time and spend some time with my parents so my parents could give their approval. And that's a whole other story for another time. But my mom had me praying for her. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder where my wife is. And I said, my future wife is, I said to my mom, I said, I wonder if my future wife lives here in Mississippi. And my mom said to me, she said, Your future wife might live on the other side of the globe. How prophetic was that? My wife was living in Peru at the time, being raised in Peru. And another little part of that story, when I was dating Angela, um, we were really close to being engaged. And I told her what I just shared with you all about praying for my future wife. And Angela got real quiet and real somber. And I looked over and a tear trickled down her cheek. And I said, what's this about? She said, when I was 17 years old, I went to a, she said I was lost, I wasn't saved. I went to a, a party with some friends. We went out clubbing and, you know, we did what lost teenagers do. And she said, I, you know, I, I still have my virginity and my purity, she said. But that night we, went, we got into a car, me and um, a, another boy and um, a friend of mine and her boyfriend, she said this boy wasn't, I didn't even know him, but the four of us got into a car and we went to a house party where there were a bunch of other kids and she said, my friend was my ride to get home. And uh, she said, one by one, people started to leave. And The only four people left in the house were the four of us. my uh, Me and this boy I didn't know that was my age and my friend and her boyfriend. She said my friend and her boyfriend went into a back bedroom to do some immoral things and just me and this boy are sitting there. She said I was left very, very vulnerable right there and I was very nervous. I didn't know where I was in town or how to get out of that spot. She said I've always wondered why it was he never laid a hand on me. She said, Now I know it was because God had you praying for me all the way on the other side of the globe. You see, you see God's hand at work there in the background. If you have children at home, teenagers at home, have them begin praying for their future spouse. Have them begin praying for their future spouse's purity. You know what? When I was praying for my future spouse, to stay pure and keep herself pure for me for that wedding night. You know, and and I was also praying that I would stay pure. You, You understand that? Because if I'm praying for my future wife to be pure, then boy, the expectation on myself is that I will likewise be pure. And if you are here and you're an adult and you're single and have aspirations of getting married, begin praying that if God were to have you be married, that He would begin to... Prepare that heart and prepare that person. But nonetheless, this is sweet. Involve your parents. And this young lady, in her dream, she found this young man and took him straight home to to mother. And so we see the dream of the farm girl as she is recounting it to the harem. Then we moved on and spent the rest of our time on point number two. We talked about the demand to the harem. The demand to the harem. Look at verse number five. Verse number five is the key verse to the book, This wording from the farm girl is repeated three times in the book. We already looked at it once in chapter number 1. We see it here again in chapter number 3. It will come up again later in the book. She says here, I charge you, O, da- o ye daughters of Jerusalem. Anytime you see that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, that's a reference to the spouses of, of uh, Solomon. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hens of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. Hence, we get the title of the Bible study, Please Don't Stir Up Love. She's saying to him here, she's saying, I greatly miss my fiancé. In fact, I miss him so much, I'm dreaming about him. I'm dreaming about hunting him down and finding him and taking him to my mother's house. She said, Oh, but please don't send out a search party. Let him come find me. Oh, please, don't force love. Don't stir up love. Not stirring up love is the theme of the book. It is the theme of the book. She dreamed about pursuing her lost love, but commanded the daughters of Jerusalem to let it be. Let it happen organically. Let it happen on its own. We said last week, many folks force love. The daughters of Jerusalem, the 140 wives, had forced love. Had forced love. It's hard for me to believe that these 140 girls, any one of them, loved Moses, or rather loved Solomon for the right reasons. Um, in fact, if you go back to chapter one, which we won't do tonight, but if you go back to chapter one and see how the harem opens the book, describing Solomon, it is all about sensual and sexual things that they describe about him they 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 did not love him the way that a spouse ought to love a spouse they their love was perverse in its nature and we said some people get married and they fall in love because they force love and they jump into it For the wrong reasons we said some marry just for the status they want to know that they've married someone just so they can be married and they can walk around with a ring on their finger and 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 claim I'm married I'm married I'm married some people get married for money and we talked about these 20 something year old girls that marry these 70 something year old Hollywood stars that are filthy rich. It's hard for me to believe that that blonde shell, bomb bomb, bomb blonde shell, there it is, would marry some 70-year-old wrinkly prune. Other than the fact that he's filthy rich and going to leave her a lot of money when he dies. You with me? No, I'm not saying there hasn't ever been a marriage where the 20-something-year-old really did fall in love and get married for the right reasons. I'm sure that has happened. I don't want to throw out uh, a blanket statement and say it's never happened. But let's just be honest. What does a 25-year-old have in common with a 74-year-old, 75-year-old? Nothing. Very little, except that he's rich. Some people get married for money. I have a friend of mine that lives down in the Baltimore area. He is in his 60s and uh, maybe early 70s. He's really wealthy, very well-to-do, and um, uh, he's got nice house and he's got a yacht in the Inner Harbor, of Baltimore, and Lots of money in the bank, and he, he nice friend to have, Amen. Um, very wealthy, and um, and he's 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 tried the dating scene a lot, and he says it's really hard. It's really hard because everybody out there is coming after your money. He said um, I had a young lady that I started to talk to online and started to date her, and the next thing I know, she wanted to come over, and she came in my house, and she's checking every room, and. She's looking at my car and kind of sizing it up to see and she's wanting me to take her out on my boat and, and, and then after I figured out that she was just money hungry and not really interested in me, within just two days after the breakup, she's back online looking for another man who is wealthy. Some marry for status. Some marry for money. They're stirring up love. We said some folks, they stir up or force love, uh, for Fame, and they want to marry someone who's famous. Others do it for sex. They know that sex belongs inside of the confines of marriage and only belongs in Inside the confines of marriage, and so they hurry up and get married so they can have sex and they can be active in their sex life and and feel as though they have permission to do it. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the status of being married, and there's nothing wrong with uh, having financial security in marriage. There's nothing wrong uh, with uh, fame that would come along in marriage. There's nothing wrong with sex inside of marriage. God created sex, and it's it's a good thing. It's it's a biblical thing. It's it's a godly thing even, and it's meant to be between two people within marriage. That's not the problem. The problem is when we put the cart before the horse. The problem is when we're getting married for these things, not that we're doing these things because love has happened on its own. And then we said some hop into a marriage for companionship. I want to just reiterate this. I've had a lot, and I mean a lot, of people land in my office over the last five years who are in their late 40s or above, late 40s or above, and they're single and they're lonely. And when I say they're lonely, I mean they're desperately lonely. And I, I'm not here to throw stones at anyone in that spot. In fact, I have wept tears over those people. I hurt for someone who walks through life lacking companionship and is lonely. Oh, I would never, ever, 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 ever want someone in that spot to think that Pastor Lejeune is anything less than compassionate uh, toward you. I have tried to put myself in that place and think about how I would feel if my wife uh, tragically died and I was left as a widower in my uh, late 30s and how heartbroken I would be, how lonely I would be. And how you got there doesn't really matter. There are people that are in that spot and they're lonely. And boy, I hurt for you. I mean that. But you don't want to hop into a marriage that is a bad marriage just for companionship because I promise you, you will miss the days that you were single and lonely if you marry the wrong person. You make sure that you don't stir up love. You make sure that you let this happen on its own, that you let it happen naturally. As I look at this harem, what I see is a 13-year-old girl who is interested in a different boy every month. They're just excited for love for the sake of being in love. Don't stir up love. Don't seek out love. Let love uh, seek you out. Let love find you on its own. Um, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to, to emphasize if I could this evening, and that is this point here. The marital status, marital status is improperly worshipped in church culture. I didn't get to spend a whole lot of time on this last week, so I want to spend just a minute here. It won't take us long to get through point number three. All right, here, listen to me on this, okay? Um, God's will is not for everyone to be married. God does call some people to be single their entire life. I have grown up in Baptist churches, and I don't think Baptist churches are the only ones guilty of this. But this is, my, um, this is my perspective. This is my purview. The Singles Department of 20s, 30s and 40's, the Singles Department almost felt like the group of folks in the church who, oh well, they weren't good enough to get married, so we took them over here. That's terrible. That's wrong. That's awful. Sometimes God does not call people to get married. You know, what some, Paul, you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7? He said it's better that you don't get married because you now have more time on your hands where you don't have to tend to the things of the world because now you can pour more of yourself into the kingdom of heaven. I'm thankful for, and, and, and if I would have told her I was going to do this, she would have begged me not to. I'm going to do it anyway, amen? I'm thankful for Miss Marcia Anderson. Miss Marcia is not married, and she gives her whole self to this church. I mean her whole self. She's all in for White Oak Baptist Church. I think of Brother Reggie over here, who is, um, uh, he pours himself into this place. The building's been really clean lately, hasn't it? Brother Reggie's the one that keeps her buildings clean. So if you happen to notice that the building's clean, hey, go by and let him know how great of a job he's doing. And how, um, how thankful we, uh, we are for him. The reconstruction of the upstairs area, he did with just a couple of helpers, one of them being my son. He did 99% of it, and you let him know how thankful that you are. Uh, we are for him and him pouring himself into this place. These folks here, they're not married, and uh, life has uh, uh, handled them in a way that's gotten to them where they are, but you know what they do? They pour themselves into serving God. Sometimes God does not call someone to be married, and instead of walking up to him and say, when are you going to find a boyfriend? Hey, I have a cousin. You want me to set you up on a date? Oh, we don't need to stir up love. We don't need to force it. Can I tell you, too, that this is part of where the homosexual community comes from? Because someone who is not born to be married, God makes some people to be, listen to this term, a-sexual, meaning they don't have a sexual preference. They're not born with a desire toward the other sex or their same sex. But Satan wants to push them in a binary system of, well, if you don't like the opposite gender, then by default you like the same gender. And when people are made to feel uncomfortable at church, they will go to the crowd that makes them feel comfortable. This is a problem. This is a problem. Hey, let me just encourage all of you matchmakers in the room tonight, cut it out, knock it off. If you want to very carefully and tactfully introduce a couple of single people you know to each other and just see if things take off on their own, have at it. But don't ever, 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 ever make someone feel uncomfortable. I know um, uh, my brother and uh, sister, Tim and Edith, who just had the baby, Today, I know that people would ask them, Are y'all going to have a baby? Are y'all going to have a baby? And boy, it just made them feel so uncomfortable. You know? Uh, Because they were trying. They tried for a long time before God finally gave them a baby today. And when you walk up to someone who's single and make them feel uncomfortable at all about being single, boy, that's a problem. You're doing the same exact thing to them. Don't stir up love. The demand to the harem. What did this farm girl tell the harem? Hey, let's not force things. Let's let's let things happen on their own. Number three. Notice the drama of Solomon. The drama of Solomon. Okay, so now we get to verse six through eleven. And if you haven't done so in your Bible, put put some parentheses around verse six through eleven. And this is the harem, the harem um, expressing their love for solomon the husband okay the harem the harem's love and affection expressed for their the husband solomon the harem is speaking here from 6 through 11 and let's read it together okay it says uh, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the powders of the merchant behold his bed now in my bible off to the side, I have a line drawn from bed into the margin, and I have these two words written down, bridal car, bridal car. I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. Behold his bridal car, his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it. Are you picturing this in your head? Solomon's laying on this bed, and he's got 60 men carrying this on their shoulders, okay? Okay. Uh, of the value of Israel, they all hold swords. They're decorated, being experts in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear uh, in the night. So they're there to keep Solomon safe while he sleeps. King Solomon made himself a chariot. So this chariot is a reference back to the bed or the bridal car, okay? Uh, he made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love, O oh brother, for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion. Half the harem here is speaking to the other half. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold, King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousal's in the day of the gladness of his heart. Okay, let's break these verses down here, okay? Letter A, notice his power. Speaking of Solomon, notice his power. Look at verse number 6. Let's read down through verse number 8. And notice the description of how powerful Solomon is. The Bible says, who is this? So Solomon comes riding in on this bridal car, okay? Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? with all the powders of the merchant. You know what that means? That means that he was very well perfumed or coloned up. He had the best of the best um, uh, spices in cologne. My wife uh, sometime back for Christmas got me a, a, I don't know, $60, $80 bottle of cologne. And I don't wear cologne very much. Maybe I should wear it more, amen. But I don't wear it very much. And um, it just basically sits on my dresser and collects dust. But I have seen bottles of cologne that are $1,000, $2,000, right? I, what do they put in there? You know, and, and just to be sort of a junior high boy for a minute, have you ever seen on the side of a uh, cologne bottle that says in French, EAU de toilette? You ever seen that? How many know what I'm talking about? I think, did they put toilet water because it's the same color? Uh, What is this here, right? And I'm not wearing that stuff, amen? Maybe that's why I don't wear cologne, because I got that in my head when I was 13. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, he comes in wearing the best of spices and odors. What is going on here, okay? This young lady, this is her second day in the palace, and Solomon is going to make his strongest pass at the girl right here he made a casual pass at her the first time and she shot him down and she went up to her chambers to go to sleep he went his way to go to bed the next morning he's going to pull out all the stops and he's really really going to come at her this time and so here he comes into her presence bringing out his very best, trying to convince this young lady, hey, you know what, woo, wow, ah, ooh, look at Solomon, boy, he's impressive, I want to marry him. So verse 6 describes how he smells. It says here uh, that he's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant the top of the top verse 7 behold his bed or his bridal car which is solomon's here he comes riding in on this thing three score 60 valiant men we know that david had his mighty men of valor so this would have been like the elite of the elite soldiers okay 60 valiant men are about it or carrying it of the valiant of israel this is the top of the top of israel's military they all hold swords Swords, notice the power on display here. Being experts in war, every man hath his sword upon his thigh uh, because of fear in the night. How selfish was Solomon. He would sleep on this bed while these 60 guys all night long hold this bed on their shoulder and have their sword right here ready to defend him. They had to stay awake all night. Boy, I don't know... That To me, that's over the top. Maybe they laid the bed down and just watched. I don't know. But there they are awake, and he's sleeping uh, while they protect him at nighttime. Solomon was a powerful, powerful man. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter number 4 and verse number 21. For those of you at home, these uh, verses were late add-ons, and I did not get them over to uh, our media uh, team our, our media team is composed of Brother Joe, amen? I didn't get them over to Brother Joe, so these won't be on the screen, some of these verses. So get your Bible out at home and read along. 1 Kings chapter 4, and look at verse number 21. And let's notice how powerful Solomon was. The Bible says, And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and under the border of Egypt. They, meaning the rulers of these other countries, they brought presents, and served Solomon all the days of his life. We call that a tribute, a tribute, tributary. They are giving him a tributary. You know what that was? That was a peace offering to Solomon that he would not invade them or take any more of their freedoms away. Solomon was so powerful that they would appease him by yearly giving him uh, money. Verse 22, And Solomon's provision for one day Look here, this is what it cost to keep Solomon and his army of people at the palace going. Look here, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, three score or 60 measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen of the pastures and 100 sheep besides harts, roebucks, fallow deer and fatted fowl. That was the animals it took to feed the army of people in his palace every day. For he had dominion, look at that, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from uh, Tifsa even to Azah over all the kings on this side of the river and he had peace on all sides round about him. He had peace for two reasons. Number one, a lot of those thousand women that he married were the daughters of these kings. It's pretty hard to attack someone when your daughter lives in their palace. Okay. So a lot of Solomon's marriages were tactical in nature. But two, he had grown so powerful, everyone was afraid to attack him. Everyone was afraid to attack him. So they would give him offerings, money, tributary money, so he'd leave him alone. Here he comes on this bridal car, and all his power, not only his power, notice letter B, his prosperity, his prosperity. Go back to Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and verse number 9. It says there, king Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. Speaking of this bridal car, look at verse ten. He made the pillars thereof of silver. Now imagine this thing's being hoisted up on shoulders and uh, of the of the soldiers. So you would have been able to see the bottom of this thing. He made uh, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple. We know, remember Lydia, the seller of purple? Purple was a hard color to get. It was an expensive fabric. If you had a purple fabric, that was a very expensive fabric. And, of course, he had the best of the best. His covering of it was purple. The midst thereof being paved with love. Doesn't that sound cheesy? He had this, the middle of his bed was the place of love. He's saying to that young lady, that, that up there is the bed of love, the 140 wives... That up there is where the love happens. Um, uh, he, it goes on to say, uh, for the daughters of Jerusalem, for his wives. And so we see here uh, his prosperity. He was able to deck this thing out with the finest of materials. How wealthy was he? Well, Solomon at the end of his life tells us just exactly how wealthy he, he was. Go back over to Ecclesiastes. That would be to the right of the book of Psalm, Psalms, Proverbs Ecclesiastes. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter number 2. And here Solomon tells us just how wealthy he was. If you're in uh, Song of Solomon, it's one book to the right. And look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Solomon speaking here, I said in my heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, What doth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. So he was a wine connoisseur. Yet acquainting mine heart with wine, wisdom and to lay hold on folly uh, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life so he said I went and lived life to the fullest if my if I could have it I had it look at verse 4 I made me great works I built me houses I planted me vineyards I made me gardens and orchards and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and um and had servants born in my house. Also I had gotten possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. So he literally had an orchard, he had exotic woods, he had exotic swimming pools, and now uh, here he has his own zoo. He has his own or a menagerie. Look at verse 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. He's got his own museum of peculiar things. I got me men singers and women singers. So he has a choir that's on the ready and the standby to sing for him whenever he wants. And the delight of the sons of men as Musical instruments. He has an orchestra on demand. We have orchestra and choirs on demand. It's called Spotify. He had the real thing. He had the real thing. Okay? He'd just say, hey, I want the choir to sing this for me today. And boy, they'd strike up the orchestra and they'd start singing on demand. Verse 9. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever uh, mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. He said, I got it all. I had it all. I was waited on hand and foot. He said, I was wealthy. You see what he's doing to this poor girl? This poor girl who was raised in a peasant's home? He's saying to her, if you marry me, look at the power you can have. If you marry me, look at the prosperity you can have. Letter C, he says, or rather, letter C, notice his perversity. His perversity. Look at verse number 11. And I'm going to point out the perversity here. Go forth, O ye... What's that next word? What's that next word? You all look in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says there, o, uh, go forth, O ye... Notice that it's Plural. Anybody see a problem with that? We've talked about this at length. Those who claim that Solomon is a picture of Christ in this book, in order to believe that Solomon is a picture of Christ in this book, then you also have to believe that God is endorsing polygamy. Because Solomon is a polygamist. O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. It says there, uh, daughters of Zion rather. And behold, King Solomon with the crown were with his mother. Crown him in the day of his espousals. Now Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. Bathsheba, I believe, was forced, just as the duty of being the, the, the mother of the king, to have to crown him on these days as part of the ceremony, his espousals, plural and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Let me just say this right here, right now. Polygamy is a sin. And I don't believe anyone has a problem with that. However, in 50 years, or maybe 30 years, or 20 years, that will be a controversial thing to be said in a church. The day is coming where polygamy is pushed on America the way the homosexual movement has been pushed on America over the last 20 years. I know you all are looking at me like, what? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that's the next thing on the horizon. Uh, the slippery slope, that's the next thing on the slippery slope. And polygamy is coming, but I just want to make it clear right now. It is wrong for a man or a woman to be married more than to just one person. God did not make Adam, Eve, and Rachel. He made Adam and Eve. One man and one woman are to be together for life. Amen? Amen. And so this was perverse. And I can kind of get the sense that when this bridal car came pouring into the room where this farm girl was, I get the sense that some of the harem may have rolled their eyes and said to themselves, Oh, brother, he pulled the same thing on me. He made me think I was the one that was special. He used that same stunt with me that he's trying to pull on her. Let's finish with letter D and notice his pressure. His pressure. And I'll, because of time, I won't read uh, verses 6 through 11 again. But what is Solomon doing here? He is pouring on the pressure. Marry me. Marry me. Hey, I came at you the first time, it was just me, and that wasn't good enough. So now I'm throwing my wealth, I'm throwing my power, I'm throwing my prosperity at you. Hey, marry me. And I just want to say this to all of you here today that are single. Listen up. The world wants to pressure you into doing love their way don't buy what they're selling because they're selling you a train wreck. They're selling you pain and hurt. I know that this isn't popular to say in 2021, but abstinence is the best. Wait until you are married before you give your body to someone else. Now, I say that, and there's people in this room that are married, and you did not wait. And I'm not here to throw a single stone at a single person. But I am here to say to the ones that are single today, you're better off waiting than jumping into bed with someone before you're married. I'll go a step further. You're better off waiting for love to happen naturally than for you to press and push and find it before it's time. Don't let the world press and pressure you into doing love their way someone says well pastor lejeune the bible's way of doing love is old-fashioned and pastor honestly it just doesn't it it just doesn't work and i would say to you i think it works a lot better than the world's model where 50 percent of marriages end in divorce and you know what the truth is the number that should be a lot higher because a lot of people don't even get married anymore they just move in and live together You know what, I've offered this challenge before, and I'll finish the Bible study offering it again. It's a million dollar challenge. Million dollars. If you can find this couple and bring them to me, I will find a million dollars to give to you. (laughs) Find a couple, because I don't have it, but I'll find it, amen? I know a few millionaires. Find a couple that's doing it God's way out of Ephesians 5. Find a couple that does it the Bible way, where they're both, uh, both husband and wife, have their heart all the way in it, and are really doing it, that's miserable. Find that couple and bring them to me where they're both doing it, and I'll give you a million dollars. You can't, because that couple doesn't exist. You do it God's way, you're guaranteed to be joyous and happy and fulfilled. Guaranteed every time. That doesn't mean there won't be struggles. How many of you in here are married and have had a struggle in your marriage at some point? Okay, my hands up. Amen. Amen. If my wife was here, she'd put both hands up. Amen. Struggles happen; not easy sometimes. You press through. You press through. Amen. Don't stir up love. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with the word of prayer. Next week, we'll look at the, what Solomon said to the young lady, and it was—it's probably the, the filthiest part of the book. So, if you like to hear dirty talk in church, come back to church next week. Amen.